Well, good morning. It's great to be back here again. You brought uh, tears to my wife's eyes this morning. Not by your singing, not by the worship, but by the 15-foot poster of me out in the foyer. <laughs> she found that very amusing. I think it would be a very appropriate Christmas present for her this year, so I might be actually asking for a copy. It is very good to be back. I am so excited uh, to be hearing of your story and the journey that you are on at the moment. Uh, I was with Paul uh, every week, I think, leading up to uh, through the month of October when the uh, gift day and the month of prayer and everything that was taking place. And uh, every week Paul would speak to me and, and after the first week, you know, it, it's a good start and it's a £95,000 has been given. It's like, wow, this guy, that's amazing, that's amazing. And Paul, yeah, yeah it's, that's good, it's good. The second week, and I think it was 135,000. 135, wow, that's just, just, just great. The third week, 195,000. Wow, that's incredible. And Paul's got, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Do you know, yeah, yeah, it's good. I said, Paul, it, it is amazing. And then I think it was a few days before the final Sunday, and I, I sat down and we were chatting about it. And uh, I said, well, the last Sunday, okay, well, I'm kind of believing for this. And, do you know? And that guy, okay, well, well, Paul, it's very good what you've got already. It's very good. It's, yeah, but I'm believing for this. And, and then I got the text message through the following. Actually, on the day, I think, on the Sunday, you sent out a message just to say, whoa, it's 334,000, £35,000. It's just... And I went, oh, it's amazing. I showed, I think my daughter was the only one around at the time. And so I excited her in the Your Adventure and she looked thrilled. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, great dad. But it is, I, I love it. I love it. I, I love what is taking place. Just during worship today, I really felt that, that there's, I'm, not, I'm not a sailor. I've been sailing once when I was about 14 and hated it. So this analogy is not brilliant from my personal perspective. But it feels as if like the, the wind of God is blowing and the sails are going up and it feels as if it feels as if like you've pulled one lot of sails down and you're now putting up another set of sails to catch a bigger wind. And it just feels as if you, that is where, where you're at at the moment. It feels like, hey, you've been blown along by the presence of God, by the Spirit of God, and by the, the purposes of God, and it feels as if, like, you, right, okay, this rigging has gone down, and it's now time to put up this huge sail, which is capturing uh, the real sense of the Spirit of God. And uh, the importance of that, and I guess it really kind of ties in with where I want to be talking today, is this, as these sails are going up, it's so important that you're all pulling in the same direction. Actually, in on a crew, on a boat, people who love sailing often will say that the, that the sense of camaraderie, the sense of togetherness, the sense of being in team, that everyone who's pulling on this rope and that rope and steering this and everything that goes on, the importance of everyone on that crew in order to catch the full benefit of the wind. Actually, in some ways, really, that is what I wanted to talk about today, is how do we pull in the same direction uh, with the same purpose and the same heart so we're catching this, this, this wind of God at the moment. Uh, so it's such a joy, really, to be back with you, uh, to hear your stories, to be catching up on all the latest stuff, the, the faithfulness of God, the generosity of his people. And uh, I love this sense of that you're pressing forward in this time to be going. Going back into your history, you've got a longer history than the church that I'm a part of. From all of your reputation, based on one individual who shared this with me, when it kicked off in the mid-1970s with five old ladies and a dog. Now, 
the question is, are those five old ladies still here? I don't know, maybe. Maybe I assume that they are very old by this point. And the dog. What has happened to the dog? I don't know whether you're aware of this, but over in, in Eastbourne that we have a memorial garden, the Don Smith Memorial Garden, which is... For those who don't know Don, Don is actually very much alive, but we have a memorial garden and we keep threatening to put a bench in it with his name on it and uh, with bunk written. And uh, there is this, this, this shared history, but he says that five old ladies and the dog, those five old ladies and the dog have played such a significant part in laying down a foundation. They've actually been laying down a legacy. What happened 30 odd years ago, 36 years ago, has been laying down such a significant legacy that is affecting and shaping the Christian community here within Hastings. It is also affecting and shaping individuals' lives who had no knowledge of Jesus but now do have a knowledge of Jesus. This is the legacy that over those 36 years and whichever part of the journey that you're in on that, this is what you are placing down on the ground today. Depositing something which has future benefit. It's a big challenge. So the challenge, I think, for all of us is actually what is the legacy that we individually and we corporately are leaving behind? What am I leaving for others even to be building on into the future? I doubt that many of you will know a lady called Joan Barber. In fact, I know none of you will know a lady called Joan Barber. When I used to live up into uh, East Anglia in a place called Great Yarmouth, there was an elderly lady who lived in a house that uh, who I was working with rented a shop from her. Well, we call it rent. She gave it us for free. And I would often pop in to see Joan. Joan used to run a wool shop. She used to knit everything she wore and she still, to the last time I saw her, was knitting her own outfits. She looked as if she was living in absolute poverty. She was kind of a recluse. She would hardly step outside of her door. When she died some eight years ago. Prior to her death, she said, Graham, will you, when I've gone, look after, will you just look after things? So I went, that's fine, of course I will. We'll, we'll, we'll be sorted, we're fine. No, will you look after it? And it kind of agitated her, really, to the point where she would often ring up and say, is it still all right for you to be looking after my affairs afterwards? I went, no, it's fine. It, honestly, Joan, I will deal with that. Well, I didn't realise that after her affairs, after she died... What she meant by affairs was that she'd left in trust funds something to the tune of £350,000. And in her will, she said, look, I'm leaving this to Graham, not personally, sadly. <laughs> but actually, I want you to distribute this in such a way that it's going to benefit children who are living in poverty. And so long after her death, she is still leaving a mark in this world far outside of the place that she has ever, ever went to. She probably never even stepped out of Great Yarmouth. And yet she is touching places around nations. And that's her legacy. Some of you will know Dave and June Dean. Uh, he's an elder over in Eastbourne. That, he's just hit 65. June has retired twice now. And uh, they are now in that point of 65. God, what do you want us to be doing? And so they've just made the decision to move thousands of miles around the world and go and build a school in Zimbabwe on the back of Joan's money. 
So here we've got someone who is now touching the nations, who died eight years ago and never stepped outside of Great Yarmouth. And that is a sort of legacy, not in a financial way. What I'm talking about today is what is the legacy that we are going to be leaving behind? See, it's important for us to be living and building in such a way that blesses future generations and touches nations. I've been inspired by a story down into Eastbourne recently. I've been looking in at another church, another church building right down in the town centre. And I've been following the story and I've done extensive research on Wikipedia about the history of this church. And it began in 1812. And then, sort of just under 100 years later, they made a decision that this building that we built nearly in the previous generation isn't sufficient for our needs and isn't sufficient for what we want to be doing into the future. And so in 1904, I guess really on the back of many revivals that were taking place around the country, they made a decision, so let's increase uh, the size of this building, let's demolish the previous one and let's start again. So in 1904, they started a build. They finished it and were able to move into it in 1907. Someone gave me photos recently of the foundation stone being laid into this property. I had the privilege of walking around this building only a, a matter of a month or so ago. But in 1907, it was built, and it says this, to the glory of God and for the radical evangelization of Eastport. Here it was, a hundred years ago, there was a group of people who were faithfully, who were persistently caught up in a vision and a purpose, catching the wind. They put the sails up. They were catching the wind. They were pushing into the same direction. Within 19 years, the entire debt had been cleared. I love that. I love how the fact that this generosity was running through these passion-filled people. Within 50 years of that building being on, they'd, they'd increased their attendance to well over 400 people. But the sad thing is, the doors are virtually closing now on this building. It, it, there's less than 50 people in an 800-seater auditorium. See, how do we build in such a way that in 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, there is a legacy that is being left that people can still be riding the same waves, carrying on the same purposes of God. It's a challenge for us, a challenge for churches like King's Hastings, a challenge for King's Eastbourne, because I want to see and how do we leave something that future generations are going to feel the benefit How are we investing? Where are we investing? Who is coming up behind us? What younger leaders are coming through? Thrilled to see young guys leading worship. Who are the leaders who are coming through? What about building projects? What about purchasing of land? What about making investments that bring a return, not necessarily just for us, but bring a return for people in years to come? See, it's part of a legacy of 36 years that you've been down on the ground or thereabouts building authentic Christianity that has helped to shape and influence the Christianity within this community and has seen lives being added. But the question is, what about the next 36 years and how are we going to continue writing the chapters in the story? Francis Lupton. Again, some of you may not have heard of him. He was a wealthy industrialist in the 19th century in the north of England. He left a legacy that would bless future generations within his own family. He set aside a bursary fund that his children and his children's children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren will benefit from this bursary that would send them to the best schools in the country. A hundred years or so later, his great-great-granddaughter 
benefited by being sent to a very well-established, very uh, well-respected private school, which then opened the door for her to attend a college, which was a very good college. It was in Scotland called St Andrews. That introduction to St Andrews led her to being introduced to her future husband. Her future husband, His Royal Highness William. Kate Middleton, Duchess of Cambridge, future Queen, See, a legacy that was left a hundred years ago introduced Kate to the king and what we're doing now is, is, is leaving something in place that will one day introduce people to Jesus. So what we need to be doing is somehow keep walking forward. Otherwise, any momentum is going to stop. Any movement will just become like this old tired monument, something that once marks the, the, the past of something that was glorious one day but no longer. We need to somehow keep moving forward, keep putting up the sails, keep catching the wind of God. I came across a very strange YouTube clip recently. Someone linked me in and said, just watch this, so I watched it. And it was of a man at a, at a music festival. He stood in the middle of a field, and while the music was going on, it just started to wave in a very unusual kind of dance movement. Now, the people, somebody picked up their iPhone and started videoing him because it was just strange, his little dance movements that were going on. Totally out of sync with the music and everything like that. And they started to laugh. You could hear on the video, oh, look at this man. Oh, look at him. Oh, he's a joker, isn't he? Look at him, look at him. And then somebody joined him. And then someone else joined him. And then someone else and someone else. And actually, over the period of three or four minutes of this video clip, what started off with one man, strange movements in a dance, very random kind of behaviour, in the middle of a field, he had gathered not just five or ten or twenty, but hundreds of people are now seen on this video clip, all dancing in the same kind of very unusual, bizarre kind of way. What he did not realise that he'd started a movement. Now, it isn't a movement that's going to change the world, but it was a movement that kept on going and people kept adding to it and the guys who joined in and you could see whole crowds of people say, hey, what's going on? And whole bunches of people would run in and join in no idea about the man at the front who was doing the odd dance on his own. And suddenly, four, five, six rows, ten rows deep, there was these people who were doing this strange dance. Why? Because they were just copying the person in front. So there used to be one man right at the front with long grey hair and waving his arms around. And then the generations have come in behind. And now what is happening is, 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 is who's around us? Who are we copying from? Who are we, who are we catching hold of the same flavour of what's taking place? But the question is, who's coming in behind us? That, that really is such an important thing because we need to be building in so the rows behind are copying us. And then two or three or four rows who have no idea of close personal relationship with a guy at the front, no knowledge, but they're still catching hold of the same movement in sense of what God is wanting. Eventually, I guess, on the YouTube clip, the music stopped and the crowds dispersed. But what about us? When does the music stop? Does the music ever stop? Because even if the quirky guy with the long white hair leaves the party, the party still continues. And as we copy those in front. Wesley and Whitfield, Booth and Wilberforce, who's lining up? Smith and Groves, Dutton and Mann, is the music still going to be playing in 10 or 20 or 36 years. See, the sails are up. The wind is certainly blowing. But there's going to be some things around that are going to stop us. Got to stop pulling in the same direction. 
We're going to have some people who are potentially going to be pulling the ropes on this one, trying to get this sail up and say, no, you don't want the boom, you don't want the sail that way, look, the wind's blowing this way, come on, we need to go over here. See, the problem is, we need to be going and pulling into the same direction. And for some of us, guess what, we need to, for the greater good and the purpose, is let go of some of our personal preferences and serve the purposes of God together. What's going to stop us? Here's a number of things. When we get distracted... Okay, to help you, they all begin with a letter D. Okay? When we get distracted, when we get sidetracked, when we take that eye off the ball, when we fail to make him known for the, his glory and for the radical evangelization of East, uh, Eastbourne, Hastings. Yeah. It's if we dilute what God has called us to. When we dilute the sense of, and we listen to the culture, and we listen to committees, and we listen to other voices, we water down the very purpose that God has called us to. And the Great Commission, of course, is to go into the world and make disciples. It's such a big, important question. I'm gathering some of my senior leaders together on the 2nd of January next year and say, what are we really about, and what has God really called us to? We mustn't dilute what God is calling us for the very reason of our existence. What else will stop the music? What else will stop us moving forward? If we feel disappointed, it hasn't worked out, we've not achieved, I've not been recognised, I feel let down. I feel disconnected, or I've become disconnected. The leaders don't know me, they don't even know my name. To be honest, I don't even know my own name some of the time. In a context like this, where you're saying, God, we're going to catch the wind, it's like this sense of, hey, I want you to feel so connected in this sense of where God is taking you. Sometimes we don't like discomfort. That's an easy one to slip into. I'm getting more mature in my years, and there's things that I enjoy, and there's comforts that I like. My children can't understand it. And there's a danger that we can easily slip into the comfort of familiarity. I was visiting my, I was at my home church. Where I grew up as a child, I was visiting the church last week. They invited me back just as 25 year, 50 year celebration. And the, I was kind of one of their protégés and they'd supported me years ago. And so, yeah, of course, I'd come back and speak. And, and it was moving into a setting and I just lightheartedly joked that my parents sat in the exact same seats where they sat 30 years ago. Do we like familiarity? Comfort is going to stop us. Right down the east coast of America, there's a load of very exclusive country clubs overlooking the sea. None of them started that way. They all started out as lifeboat stations to rescue people who were in peril on the sea. But over time, well, if they get rescued, then they'll need somewhere to stay. Uh, well, we need to build a house for the, to house them. Oh, we need to, in that house, we need to put some changing rooms. We need to put beds. We need to put, oh, of course, well, if they're coming off the sea, they'll be draggled. Oh, this room is now too nice for them. Let's build another one. And over time, what happened was these initial lifeboat stations right down the east coast of America have become exclusive country clubs, forgetting what they're really about. It's easy to fall into comfort. What else is going to stop us? Disagreement. Disagreement can easily cause divisiveness and fractions and splinters and splits. We need to do all that we can to diffuse disagreement. Seventhly, if we live in disobedience, we'll fall disobedience to God's best plan. Sink is going to sink us as individuals and sin will sink you as a church. When we water down or undermine our doctrine, when we move away from what the Bible says in order to make it more palatable with what local society is now wanting you to say. 
Ninthly, is when we wait around for death. If there's no succession planning, who are we handing on to? Who's going to be around in a hundred years? Well, pretty much none of us. But who's going to be around in ten years? And there's this sense of where is the succession, where is the legacy that is being left behind? And then finally, tenthly, is passivity when we slip into disunity. Disunity, I'm becoming convinced, is of such importance that we challenge and we head and strive for unity. Now, it isn't kind of a thing that as a church with Eastbourne, and I don't know what it's like here, that, well, do we really need to be united with what's going on in there? Is this all about ecumenicalism? Is it all about agreeing on the lowest common denominator of which coffee you can serve and which china cups you can use? I'm not talking about that level of unity. What I'm talking about is united together as one in preaching of the gospel to make transformation in community. That's what God is catching us up in. That is his purpose for us, for you. I know there's a church in Eastbourne that has recently merged with another one and they've decided to relocate and they're starting a building project which is, what, about 500 yards away from where we are. What is my response to that? So I called him in the other day and I said, Mike, you've got a big building project coming up. Yeah, we'd love to offer you our building free of charge whenever you want to use it. Because there's something within us, within our heart, within our spirit that actually hear these people who have got the same heart and the same intention, they might have a different flavour, they might go about it and reach a different people group than what I will reach, but there is this hope that they will bring transformation in individuals' lives and the community that they wanted to reach. But it's not just on a church-wide level. It's of such importance that within this community, disunity doesn't undermine the gospel purpose of what God is calling you to. Unity magnifies the gospel. What is the gospel? What does gospel partnership look like? Those are big questions, but it's how do we respond to this? If you've got your Bible, just open up into Ephesians for me, chapter 4. I'm just going to read the first six verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I therefore, Paul says, prisoner for God, urge you to walk in a manner worthy to which you have been called. Live in such a way that now demonstrates and displays and showcases God. You'll be familiar with the context of Ephesians. I think I've spoken on Ephesians before when I've come here. That Paul's writing to this church in Turkey and he's saying to them, look, You've been predestined, pre-called, predetermined to be elected as his, his child. You've been brought into his family. You've been forgiven. You've been set free. You've been redeemed. You've been caught up into his purposes, his eternal purposes. You have been given a guaranteed inheritance by his spirit. These are all the things that now the position that we have in Christ Jesus, that's all the early chapters of Ephesians. 
And in that oneness, you've been united together. Both Jew and Gentile have become one new man in Christ Jesus. That one new man in Christ, and now is this expression on earth, and it says in chapter 3 of Ephesians, that, that we are now demonstrating, we're modelling, we're showcasing something of the character and the multifaceted nature of God. That is all wrapped up in this new body called the church. The church of Christ. Now, through the church, his manifold wisdom is being revealed to the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the earth. Who are they? Well, we pick it up later on in chapter 6. It says, basically, what we're talking about, these rulers and these authorities, it's everything that has ever set itself up in opposition to God. We see that when we say, so stand strong in chapter 6. And it goes into the battle, uh, the the armour in in the battle that we're meant to be wearing. He says, when you're coming in against... Uh, so stand strong against everything that the, that the devil is going to be throwing at you. So the church is this cosmic display of the purposes of God. The character, the nature, who God is, is now on display through us, the church. So he's got this magnificent picture that starts off with us as an individual that is now in the eternal purposes of God have been united as one in Christ Jesus, not Jew, not Greek, not Gentiles, all being pulled together in this thing called the church. Because of this, we now pick up chapter 4. Because of this magnificent responsibility that has been placed upon our shoulders because of this, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy to everything that you've been called. So, so, you know, live, live, live in such a way that demonstrates him. Together, these united people for all nations of all backgrounds and cultures and histories, and we stand to demonstrate something of the good news of the gospel. And when we stand, and when we stand firm, we are demonstrating that the gospel works. That, that's what this is about. Paul is saying, look, when you stand strong, when you're united together, all these different people from all these different places, when you are united, you stand strong and you demonstrate that God's redemption plan has worked forever. So therefore, the opposite must also be true. That when we don't stand strong together, then we are demonstrating something about the gospel that it has failed. Paul says this is really important. It's really important for us to to walk out in a way which is worthy to everything that we've been called to. See, it's not just simply about getting on with each other and finding this lowest common denominator. See, God's reputation is on the line now and we're the ones who are going to prove him right. So then, we are to walk in a manner worthy. Well, what does a worthy walk look like? Some of you will remember back in the day, Monty Python, Ministry of Silly Walks. Well, this is the Ministry of Worthy Walks, which cannot be more different. How do we go about doing this? Paul says this, with humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walking together requires, firstly, humility. Who's got bucket loads of humility? Gentleness, patience, bearing with, putting up with one another. See, the humility, firstly, is about having a sober assessment of ourselves. I recently went down to the Amex football stadium, a new one in Brighton, went along and I went into, I caught the train, had to catch the train on the way back and as I was stood with about 5,000 other people trying to catch the very same train as me, there was one man who clearly thought that he was Pavarotti and this was his moment to entertain the crowd. And so he stood on a wall which was close by and let go forth his beautiful voice clearly had no sober assessment of himself. 
You see on X Factor, in the early rounds, people come on and say, what do you want to do? I want to bless the world with my gift of singing. And then you hear them and you go, please, no more blessing. <laughs> Living in such delusion. And then you've got the anxious parents in the background watching the video. Oh, they love, they love the music. They, they don't want to do it. And they say, I don't want to do anything else in my life. This is the only thing I ever want to do. And then this thing, this awful racket comes out of their voices and the parents in the background go, oh, that's my little Jimmy. And then they rubbish them and they look so offended. Why? Because they're living in this delusion. They have no sober assessment of themselves. Humility is about understanding. It's about having a clear, sober understanding of who we are. In Luke chapter 14, we read this great story when Jesus is invited to lunch out with the Pharisees and some important people in the community, uh, some legal people, and, and these people who have made it. They're actually trying to catch Jesus out. They, they pull him into an environment, they're trying to trick him, they, they, they're trying to, like, uh, you know, they're trying to get someone healed on the Sabbath, which you can then accuse him of. Awful thing of healing someone on the Sabbath. But Jesus just looks at them after he kind of heals someone, and, and he says to he said, I noticed when everyone came in here, you all went to the top of the table. When you enter into a room, don't go to the top and then feel the embarrassment of getting pushed down the order. Start down low and then walk up to the front. Wait for the invite. They also went on to tell another story about a wedding feast and the master called out to the people, those who, who you know, someone said, oh, I can't come, I've got a field, or I can't come because well, I've got a wife to go and visit and I can't come because I've got myself some new cows. And they were coming up, these well-to-do people who were being invited into the party and the master of the story said, go out into the highways and the byways, go out here, just pull in anyone who will come, the vagabonds, the ruffians, the, the street bums, all of these people, because I want my house to be full. So humility is firstly about having a sober assessment of yourself, but it's also remembering our position has only been attained because God has made the position available to us. We've only been got invited. We, we only got an invite, a ticket to the party, not because of anything that we have done, but all because of what he has done. We have such more in common with the vagabonds in the stories than we do with the master. So the master said, come join the feasters room at the table, but it's only because he has opened the door and given us the invite can we dare to enter into the party. Or in other ways, we looked on in shock and horror at the events unfolding in London earlier in the summer this year. We have more in common with the rioters of London than we do with the righteousness of Jesus. See, there is no room for self-righteousness. Why? Because it all falls well short of the mark. Humility is about knowing your place and having a sober and a right assessment of yourself. James said this, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. You see, the intentional, deliberate actions to purposefully put others before yourself. Paul, when he was writing to the church in Philippians, he said this, message translation, if you've got anything out of following Jesus, tick. If his love has made any difference in your life, tick. If being in community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favour. Okay, does that apply? Would you feel that the majority of the people in this room, those statements, if if God has made any difference, if being a part of this community makes a difference. I'm assuming that most people in this room, that statement probably applies to you. So if this means, then therefore do this. Firstly, agree with each other. Secondly, love one another. Thirdly, be deep-spirited friends. Fourthly, don't push your way to the front. Fifthly, don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Sixthly, put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Seventhly, don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. And eighthly, forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And then he says this, think of yourself 
the way of Christ Jesus thought of himself. The glorious throne, humble manger, glorious heaven, a Nazareth back street. The glorious majesty, a peasant's home. Glorious riches, homeless, broke. Where the cries were glory, glory, glory. And the people cried, crucify, crucify, crucify. Your attitude, church, should be that of Christ Jesus. See, mistakes are made all the time. I made one this morning. <laughs> My son was ever so keen about coming over here. We got a phone call, last minute phone call to say, the desperate for football referee at uh, William Parker School this morning. My son's qualified referee. They go, oh, we're only two minutes away. Yeah, and, goes, and I said, yeah, you're fine. And he said, I want you to be in church. I went, oh. Even more frustrating, my wife is probably there standing in the cold, wet and rain as well. And she wanted to be at church. See, mistakes are going to be made. People will let you down. And to be honest, you're going to let other people down. People don't do things how you want them done. And they will do things in a way that actually really irritates you. And then they'll find situations that you come in, even on these brand new seats. You've got your set seats. Paul, you've always sat there. And someone's in my seat. Someone did that to me the other week. I have a seat about here where this gentleman is sat because I like to, like, Starship Command and everything. And he sat in my seat and someone moved him on. He can't, can't, can't sit there, it's Graham's seat. Actually, it's an interesting character, a man called Michael. Uh, and everyone in the church knows Michael. He's up and down, wandering around, saying hello, shaking hands. That's probably the most inconvenient times. And he took my seat. But actually I heard him worship God. Terrible voice. And yet he was worshipping God in such a way that both Belinda and myself were in tears. Let's not be possessive about our seats, hey? We'll make mistakes. People will sit in the wrong place. And it's a silly illustration, but it happens. They should control their child more. They never arrive on time. They have a squeaky voice. That was a letter I received one time about one of our worship leaders. <laughs> I love the vision of this church. I love what God is calling you to. But what is going to help you establish and succeed is when you put aside your preferences and your agendas and your ambition, personal ambition, and stick as one in his purposes, pulling on the same ropes, pulling up the same sails to catch the very wind of God. So what is going to stop you It's discontentment, restlessness, dissatisfaction. It will come out. Where will it come out? How will it come out? But it will come out. It will lead to frustration and it will end up with you backing off, back-chatting, bad-mouthing or backsliding. That's where it will go. Some of you are feeling disappointed, not appreciated, not recognised. Guess what? Your security lies in your position in Christ, not in your position within the church. Your disillusionment, you don't fit, you don't belong. Can I encourage you to find where you do fit? Find a place to serve. Get a part of the adventure. Be in on the adventure. When you're in on the adventure, finding some department, there's probably hundreds of empty vacancies at the moment. I don't know where I fit. Find a place to fit. Because the benefit is that you'll be in team and then you'll suddenly feel that you're in on something together. In on your small groups as well. Why? Because there's that sense of belonging. 
Someone came to me a little while back and said, I don't know where I should come to this church. I don't know where I belong. I'm going, please, I don't want to be hearing that. And I thought, what, what, what is the response? Is find a place where you do belong. And actually the small group structure is a fantastic place because there's a one anothering that can take place in the context of 10 or 12 people that can't always be expressed in a larger body like this. We had two instances a little while back, a year or so back, on, it was on Boxing Day a few years ago, when two people in the church, both their mothers died on Boxing Day. One came to me and said, I've never been so overwhelmed by the love and care of a church community. And the other said, I've never felt so alone and isolated. What was the difference? One was in a small group, the other wasn't. Being disillusioned, don't know where you fit, it will stop the music playing. If you're in disagreement, sometimes there's going to be theological disagreements. Is it going to be about the end times, how it all wraps up? Is it going to be about where the Jews fit into the whole picture? Is it going to be about where Bill Johnson fits into the picture? Is it going to be about where women fit into the picture? There's always going to be a disagreement somewhere. There's going to be a different preference, a different kind of a, a, an understanding or interpretation which will be shaped by study, it will be shaped by background, it will be shaped by something. But what happens is when we bring it into the table and there's a group over here, and there's a group over here, there's a group over here, well, I think like this, I think like this. Do you know what the two biggest battles have been in Eastbourne? The volume of the PA system and the battle of the plastic milks in the welcome area. Seriously. It took me six months to say, look, people don't like false milk, please put fresh milk. Because, well, well but, 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 but we've always done it like this. <laughs> get rid of the plastic. If nothing else, you go away from here, please. If I ever come to your house for coffee, don't give me plastic milk. That's <laughs> not the key message of today. But actually, there is this sense that actually what we need to be is in a place where we're saying, do you know what, I have my personal background, my personal understanding, my personal preferences, I have a personal theology, I have a personal, all of this, personal, 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 but the problem is, if that allows to come in here, and it breathes out, and it breathes, and you give it space to breathe, guess what, there'll be a little fraction over here, and there'll be a little fraction over here, there'll be a little group over here, and a little group over there, all pulling on ropes, all trying to pull up different sails, trying to catch different winds going into different directions, and you will stop dead in the water. Don't allow disagreement. Paul urges, he pleads with the church in Ephesus to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, there is so much at stake. There's too many individuals and churches at war with each other. There's too much resentment, there's too much frustration, too much bitterness, too much feuds, too much infighting, too much insecurity, too much vying for position. When I went out to Bulgaria a year or so back, the, the, the Protestant church or the evangelical church that was exploding in the number of churches across Bulgaria. Why? Because 12 people would get together, disagree with each other, and suddenly you'd have two churches filled with six people. Now, it'd be good if those six then became 12, but they didn't. Those six became three, and suddenly you have four churches. It's not a great church model. Someone else would want to lead. Someone would want to take the lead. Someone would want to be number one. Paul says this, be keen, be enthusiastic, be ready, be willing, be eager for the sake of the church and for the glory of God are you willing to let go of some of the things that you're holding on to, some of the things that are even defining you as an individual, some things that are precious to you, some things that are restricting you and robbing you of actually of happiness and contentment. We had a couple of people who came to me recently and there was this big issue because they have a different theological position with regards to Israel in the end times than what I hold to. And actually they wanted to have an increasing voice into the life of the church and we're going, look, this is causing a problem. We sat down for a number of hours for me to understand them, for understand where we are. And he said at the end of about three hours, he said, look, does this mean that, that, that if we are to remain within the church, we have to stop promoting this? And after three hours of discussion in good heart, I said, 
yes. So they went away. The following day, they both came back and said, we've thought about this long and hard. And this church means more to us. And Jesus means more to us than this one particular issue. It's easy to be accountable when we agree, but we are choosing to be accountable even though we disagree. Be eager, be keen. Walk in a manner worthy. Paul said this in the last few minutes. Put on then, clothe yourself with God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Sorry? Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with meekness, with patience. Bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord's forgiven you. So you must also forgive. So if your tendency or personality is to be a little bit judgmental and critical, Paul says this, choose now to put on compassion. Why do we need that? Because church is never going to be neat and tidy. Honestly. Church should never be neat and tidy. I'm pleased to have, over in Eastbourne, and I hope it's true and increasingly true here, that we have straight and gay people sitting next to each other. We have merged families next to single parents. We have single people who are next to people who are living together. We have people on, on remand sitting alongside police officers. We have people who have got addictions who are sitting down or perhaps lying down next to psychiatrists. We have learning difficulties next to PH graduates. We have abused who are sitting alongside abusers. Though that is complex. Our pastoral meetings are a nightmare. It's challenging. And I can't get my head around it. And how does our Bible theology understand and, and embrace such complexity. But I know this, that the church ought to be messy. What it requires if you have a messy church, and please, some of you go, oh, we shouldn't be living like that. No, I want, I want to be people coming into a place where they're in earshot of the gospel so the work of Christ can be at work in them, the Holy Spirit can then turn them and convert them into children of God and enter into this process of becoming more like Jesus. That, that's what I want. For people, wherever the backgrounds, histories, upbringings and everything like that, to bring them into a place where the gospel has the possibility of transforming them. Jesus had the reputation of being a friend of sinners. He worked hard at that. He had a bad reputation. I don't want us to have a bad reputation. We had a phone call a little while ago and someone rang up and said, they're coming to your church. Do you know the sort of people who are coming to your church? I went, if only they knew the leadership who were leading this church. Because the reality is I want to have a church which is incredibly complicated and messy because I want the gospel to see transformation and see people through into the kingdom. So it requires compassion. It requires love. It requires bearing with. It requires patience and humility. And do you know what it requires a lot less of? Eyebrow raising. Please control the eyebrows of disapproval. Sometimes I'm stupid, like everyone else. Sometimes I'm wrong, like everyone else. Sometimes I judge people, like everyone else. Where the gentleman in, comes in regularly, you can follow this particular man's life in Eastbourne just by reading the local paper. And he comes in and he stands at the back and nightmare for our security team. And he came to me the other week, a bit Tommy Cooper, but have you taken the offering yet? Have you taken the offering? I went, no, no, we haven't taken the offering. So I went to one of the stewards and said, careful when the offering goes round. Because... <laughs> I said, oh, okay, okay. 
I can't stick around, I've got to go. Here. And he put four pound coins into my hand. He said, this is for the offering. I went, oh, God, help me. Sometimes we're dismissive and rude, we're kindness. Sometimes we're arrogant towards others. Know your place, have a sober assessment. Sometimes your voice has to be heard. Try and meekness, submissiveness. Sometimes you're intolerant. For goodness sake, be patient. People get right up your nose. Bear with them, put up with them, like they have to put up with you. Always grumbling, always complaining, always whinging. Let me tell you, forgive just like Christ has forgiven you. That's the key. Why do we have all these things? Because of him. Do everything in such a way. Conduct yourself. Walk out your life in every way that bears the resemblance to Jesus. See, we're not just simply dancing. We are simply dancing like Jesus. It's because of him who clothed in all humility, removed all garments of his visible glory, who covered himself in the clothes of a servant, who was submissive in every way, even to a willing death on the cross, who bore for us the penalty of our sin, demonstrating God's intense love and making possible the forgiveness of our sin and our approval before God. Why do we clothe ourselves in compassion and kindness and humility and patience? Because he has towards us. The very thing that has united us, the very thing that makes us one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, the one who has done all of that, his name, Jesus. He is the common ground for all of us. The very thing that pulls us together from all directions, all backgrounds, all histories, all life experiences, essential character called Jesus. He's the one and it's all because of him. And when we know him, It helps us to deal with our pride and our arrogance. Why? Because we have a sober assessment. And when we know him, it deals with our intolerance and our impatience because he was tolerant and patient towards us. And knowing him helps us to forgive. Why? Because God has already forgiven us. Knowing this helps us. Changes everything. By him, for him, through him. Be eager to do everything you can to maintain the unity in his body. Why? Because this demonstrates Christ's work in us and it testifies that God has won, he will always win, has always won, Satan was wrong, was always wrong and forever will be wrong because Christ has the victory. To the glory of God, for the radical evangelisation of Hastings. That's why we do it. That's why we invest. That is going to be our legacy for generations to come. Selfless, sacrificial, determined, eager people to walk in a manner worthy of everything that Christ has called us to. So I want to encourage you, kings, play out of position for the greater good. Don't look for profile. Put aside your preference. Create a very different culture environment a culture that reflects the kingdom, one that demonstrates that we stand united as one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Lord, what an amazing gospel. It's incredible that you have recovered and restored and redeemed and set us free. Thank you for those amazing words earlier that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free from. We thank you for that his gospel has reached into our life that when we were the vagabonds living in the depths of depravity, you came to us and raised us up to be with you. While we were dead in our sins, 
you made us alive. Lord, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ saved us. And Lord, I don't want us as a people this morning to lose sight of our true position in you. To have sober assessments. To be fully appreciative of this amazing gospel. That there be no self-righteousness that creeps in. That there be no self-preference that comes along. That there won't be anything that gets in the way from us all pulling in the same direction for the glory of your name and for the radical evangelisation of the community in Hastings. We pray this all in the name of Jesus for your glory that we would be one to demonstrate your victory. In Christ's name, Amen.